The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. As we look at the entirety of this 18th chapter that we've been studying for quite some time now, uh, there are some wonderfully uplifting things that we find here for every Christian. In the beginning of the chapter, we learned how that God looks at us as his children, his little children. And he says that before we can come into his kingdom, that we must recognize ourselves as children and learn to depend upon the Lord for everything that he gives. And God loves that dependence. He, uh, he, he loves for us to look at him as our provider, and he relishes that role of being our provider. I, I think I could say with, with, with uh, correctness and all honesty that God really relishes being the one who showers his blessings upon us. We also learn from this chapter that God cares about us as individuals, that it doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter how we look in the eyes of the world, that God loves one as much as he does the other. And we've learned that God loves us so much that he has put all of heaven on alert for us. Part of this chapter tells us how that the angels in heaven are watching down uh, on us and they help to protect us. We also learned in this passage that the Son of God loves us enough and cares for us enough that when we wander away from him, that he comes looking for us and he brings us back to the fold. Immediately after that, we saw how that God, uh, the Father, secures us in his love, that he's not willing that any of his children should perish. And then we also learn in this chapter what we might call the art of forgiveness. That comes in verses 21 through 35, where Jesus teaches a parable or uh, says a parable to his disciples that really show that God has forgiven us of so much that we ought to forgive one another. So there are very pleasant things that are in this passage to preach. And I, I don't know of any preacher that wouldn't want to step into the pulpit and just talk to you about the love of God. That's a very pleasant subject to talk about. But sometimes our thoughts have to be turned to things that are unpleasant. We learn some things from the Word of God that we don't really like to do, some things that we don't really want to think about. And this section that we've been studying for a couple of weeks now, and we'll study again next week, is one of those places. And here it speaks of the difficulty of discipline. Now, as a parent, you know that discipline is hard. Uh, most of the time, it's something that we would really rather not do. We just don't really care a lot about disciplining our children. But we do know this, that if we're good parents, that discipline is a necessary part of what we do. I mean, we want our children to grow up and be useful, productive members of society. And so when they do things that are wrong, we do want to correct them and show them what's right. Well, God also knows that discipline is good. Disciple, that's part of the word discipline. And in order to be good disciples of Jesus Christ, he wants us to be disciplined. And so he's going to bring us back when we go in sin, when we stray away. He'll do things, certain types of things that will help to discipline us. So we have this section in Matthew chapter 18, which is about God's family and about discipline in his family, that God loves us in all ways, 
And his love is deep enough that it will correct us when we are wrong. And here, this passage teaches us as a church what how we are to deal with sin among the membership, the people in our church, how we're to correct sin and bring people back when they've gone astray. Now, if you look at Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15, let's stand one more time as we read God's Word. Matthew 18:15. Uh, these are the steps that the Lord has given for discipline in the church. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Let me just give you a little bit of a heads up on verse number 20. We won't get to that today. He says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Lots of times that passage of Scripture is taken to mean that Jesus is talking here about prayer. At where two or three are gathered in his name, that he hears those prayers. And some take that to mean that this is a the, the simplest form of a church. That's the way Schofield describes it. But this is not talking about prayer. And it's not talking about the church. It's talking about discipline. That's the whole context that we find here. And we'll explain that a little bit later on. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here today. Look after us. Watch over us. Lord, uh, may your spirit fill us today with wisdom and understanding of what your word has to teach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think in the first message that I preached on this, I told you that although this is a very difficult passage to preach, it's not really a very difficult passage to understand. But despite the very clear teaching that we find here that the Lord gave concerning discipline and the imperative nature of it, there are very few churches that will actually do what Jesus says here. That when most people come to this, most preachers come to us, they give it a cursory glance. They just sort of skip over it and don't really talk too much about it. Since pastors don't like to talk about sin, and since most of them have abandoned the use of God's law, these are not commands that are likely to be followed in the modern church. Now, in this church, we believe in taking the whole counsel of the Word of God. That God always knows what's best for us, and no matter where you come into the Scriptures, there's nothing that we ought to skip over as if we were to, if we were to teach it that it would somehow be harmful to us. All of the Word of God is profitable for our instruction. Now, to catch you up just briefly on the previous two messages, I have a lot to cover today, so I won't be long with this, but we noted first that the church is the right place for discipline. Now, the 17th verse shows the context of discipline, that here we are talking about the Lord's church. 
And when I say church, I'm not talking about some mystical, invisible, intangible entity. But what we're speaking of here is a visible body of believers. We meet together and we fellowship together. We have covenanted together to carry out the commission that Christ has given to go and make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them everything that God's Word commands. The church is the body of Christ. That's one of the metaphors that we find in Scripture. It's called the bride of Christ also. And this bride of Christ is to be holy and chaste. As Ephesians says, the Lord wants a church that is without spot or blemish. And so there is an imperative of holiness for every person that becomes a member of the Lord's church. That when we covenant together to do the Lord's work, we also agree to be held accountable to each other. As a member, you agree to be accountable to the entire body. And if holiness is a requirement for effective ministry, then certainly all of us would want to be holy, and we want a holy membership. And so when someone steps out of line with the Scriptures, and they go against the mission of the church and what Christ has called us to do, the Lord requires discipline for that. That's a problem that needs to be corrected. Now, since we only have authority over those that are actually in the church, the the church can be the only place that we exercise discipline. This is the place where we carry it out. And that's a good reason for you to be a member of the Lord's church. And that's because you need to be held accountable for your life. You need someone to watch over you and to see that you're doing what you ought to do. And you get that when you become a member of the Lord's church. Now, secondly, we looked at the purpose of church discipline, that the purpose of it is restoration. And that purpose is explained in verse number 15. When another member of the church sins against you, you are to go to that person and confront him with his sin. Now, in the end of the verse, the purpose is revealed. It says, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. You can't have fellowship with someone who's wronged you. Uh, The relationship between you and that person has soured. And in order to get it back, and in order for you not to feel any tension with that person when you're around them, when you come to church, then you're to go to that person and try to regain the fellowship that's been lost. And if that person repents of the sin that they have committed, then you have regained your brother. And so one purpose of discipline is to restore an offender to fellowship. But we also have to keep in mind that any sin that's against a member of the church is actually a sin that is against us all, that it's a problem for us all. And so when anybody in the church sins against Christ, they sin against all of us. That's because we are the body of Christ. We are in Christ. We, we are a part of Christ. And so any sin that is against Christ would be against the entire membership of his body. Well, it's like having a sore toe. If your toe hurts then your whole body has to adjust to that. Uh, when, you're, when your toe hurts, you, you kind of favor it and you limp and you try to get along. And as you do that, the leg that's trying to help the other leg and support that, uh, take the pressure off that sore toe, it begins to get tired and you have a problem then. And then when you have that, kind of, that sore toe, your, 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 the, the, the symmetry of your body gets thrown off and then you start to have back aches. 
And the thing just compounds. I mean, you take one little small part of your body that's affected, it affects the entire body. And so it's in our best interest to try to take care of the part that's hurting. And so when there is someone who sins against the entire church, that sin affects the entire body. So church discipline is also for the purpose of restoring the entire body to the blessings of the Lord. Since one sin affects all of the body, the blessings of the entire body are affected by it. If a toe gets gangrene in it, what happens if you don't do something about it? Well, the gangrene spreads. I remember reading about uh, the Civil War and soldiers during the Civil War, they would get wounded in battle and without the proper medicine, uh, gangrene was a real problem. I mean, there were more people that died in the Civil War from sicknesses, disease, wounds, and so forth, and actually died from uh, just being killed in, in, the, in the warfare. And so what they would do is if a soldier got gangrene in a body part, they, they didn't have any medicine to combat that. In order to keep it from spreading, what they would do is they would just cut off the affected body part. Gangrene is the death of living tissue, and that spreads, and the only way to stop it is to get rid of the offending body part. And that's what sin does to the body. It spreads. Sin in the church will spread. It affects the whole body, and the body can die. This is what happens to churches that allow sin to go on. If they never stop it, then eventually the entire body dies. So we need to understand the why of discipline. We, order it, we do it in order to restore the offender to fellowship and to God's blessings. And we also do it to protect the whole church from sin so that we receive the greatest of God's blessings. Well, the why of discipline brings us to the who of discipline. We're told to do it, but who is to do it? Now, I've already said that discipline is to take place in the church and I've also said that the church is not a mystical, invisible, intangible entity. The church is the people. And the church is the right place for discipline. And restoration is the purpose of discipline. And now thirdly, the responsibility of discipline falls on the people. You and I, you and I that are members of this church, a Berean church, the discipline starts with us. That discipline is your job, and discipline is my job. Now, let me return to a passage that's been critical to this study. We've used it before. We looked at it last week. In Galatians chapter 6, the very first sentence of that chapter, Paul told the Galatian churches, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. Now that tells us that the agents for discipline are the people of God. Well, which people? Well, according to this passage... It's the spiritual people. Galatians 6.1 says that it is the spiritual people. But we look at Matthew chapter 18, and there Jesus said, each of you. And that means that each of you then is to be a spiritual person that's capable of speaking to an offending member. It starts with you. Now, I've had people that will come to me and 
They said, well, pastor, I've discovered that Brother Jones is involved in a sin, and I thought that I should share this with you so that you can do something about it. Or they go to their deacon and they say, well, here's the sin that this person is doing, and I want to know, what are you going to do? Well, is that what Jesus tells us to do? Is the responsibility for discipline, does that fall on an official committee? Does it start with a board action of the church? Well, it seems very clear that the way to do this is that it is to start with you. That if you see someone who's done something wrong, or they do something against you, you go to that person. And you go to them and catch it early before it festers to to go too far. You go to that person and you show them some personal love and concern for them because that's better than waiting time, uh, all this time to get a committee together, get some people organized to go and do something about it. Now, in order to do this, it's going to require some very close personal examination. You can't be a policeman for all things that are holy in the church and desire to keep the purity of the church if you have unconfessed sin in your own life. While you're trying to hunt that person down to correct them, there may be somebody stalking you to try and correct your sins. And the worst thing that could happen to you is that you go and you talk to someone, and before you can get five words out of your mouth, they've already got a list of sins that they can throw back at you and complain about you because of what you've done. So the worst thing that can happen to you is that you become a hypocrite by going to someone and talking to them about their sin. And that's why every member of the church needs to guard his life, that we need to watch every move that we make, because every one of us must be someone, we must be someone, who's qualified to talk about sin. Now notice that Galatians 6.1 says, "...ye that are spiritual." And so that puts the onus on you to have a basis for authority. If you are honestly concerned about the purity of the church, then you must start at home and look at the sin that's in your own life. Now, Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 7. I'd like you to turn back there for just a minute, if you would. Matthew chapter 7. This is the towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The seventh chapter of Matthew is the last chapter that covers that. And if you look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 1, we we see a, a scripture that's very familiar to you. Jesus said, first verse, Judge not that ye be not judged. Now most people stop right there and they don't go any further. And they say, Jesus is telling us that we do not have the right to talk to someone about their sin. Because if we go and we confront people and we say, you've done something that's wrong, then we are judging that person. And Jesus says, you are not allowed to judge. And how many times have you heard people say, don't judge me. The Bible says, don't judge me. Why are you talking about what I do? You're not supposed to judge me. Well, this is not a passage that tells us that we can't call people to repentance. What we have to do is to read the whole story and get the whole meaning of what Jesus says because the passage is not a prohibition against judging people. It is actually a passage that gives the criteria for how we can judge people. You just have to keep reading. Look at verse 2. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. 
And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and listen, and then, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now, verses 3 through 5 tell you that you have to take care of sin in your own life before you can have authority to deal with it in another person's life. And so he says, take out that two before that's in your own eye, and then when you do that, you'll be able to see very clearly to take out the little splinter that's in your brother's eye. So the passage is not telling us that we can't judge but it sets the criteria for judgment, which is a holy life. Now, what we're to do when we look at Scripture is to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so we look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and we find out that Paul is saying the very same thing that Jesus said. Ye that are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, we're commanded in chapter 18 to watch out for the sins of an erring brother. And we do that by first taking care of our own lives. Make sure that we are spiritual people. Now, do you see how Scripture works together? Fellowship here is taken from two standpoints. What is your relationship with the Lord and your sin? And then what is your brother's need for restoration to fellowship because of his sin? So that care and concern starts with you. You are the beginning point of restoration. And we never go to a person with a holier-than-thou attitude. We go in meekness. But we do go. The Scripture says that we are to bear one another's burdens. And so we see that as our responsibility. That sin hinders God's blessings in that person's life. And sin hinders the fellowship of the Lord's body. And so what are we to be? All of us are to be members of holiness, ministers of holiness, so that we protect the holiness of the entire church. So we see then who is to go. If the sin is against you, that you are to go. Jesus said, go to your brother alone and talk to him about his sin. And that doesn't mean to discuss it with 13 of your closest friends And then take it to your special little clique so that you can bat that person around. This is not the time to expose the sin. Nobody needs to be involved but you and that person. You are to go to him, and then you are to deal with the sin. Now, that requires us, though, to hit the pause button here for just a minute. And think about this. What sins do we talk to people about? I mean, is there a scale of sins? And sin has to hit a certain seriousness on the threshold of sins before we talk to people about it. Well, that's how we look at sin in our own lives, that we think, well, sin's not really something, the sins that I commit is not something that I really need to take notice of. They're just not really all that bad, and so it's not any point in dealing with it. But I don't see that here. There is no specific sin that's mentioned. This is general, and that's because there are no insignificant sins. Now, I learned a few weeks ago that one of our members was very biblical about this. They were trying to be. They pulled another person aside, and 
they pointed out something that this person was doing that was a bad testimony. And that offending person received the correction well and took care of the problem, and so there wasn't any need to get anyone else involved. Well, what was the sin that that person was involved in? Was it adultery? No. Was it stealing? Was it cheating? Was it lying? Was it cursing? No. Well, most of us would have considered it to be a very innocuous thing. But it was still sin and one that needed to be removed. And so this member went to the offending person and told them about it, and that person thanked them for doing that because they didn't realize that they were actually doing something wrong, and they wanted to to correct it. And so the problem was taken care of right then. And that's the way brothers and sisters are to treat one another in the body of Christ. What's the motive for that? It's their spiritual welfare. Now, again, one sin is a sin against us all, and fellowship and good spiritual health of the offender is a priority as well as the purity of the body of Christ. So hopefully that's where it stops. The offender listens, and then the problem is solved. But what happens if that person doesn't listen? You've taken all the care and concern and the patience and the love and the meekness that you need. You've gone to them in the right way as best that you know how. You've removed the beam out of your own eye. You make sure that there's nothing to be complained against you. And so you've gone in sincerity and humility and in loving concern. But that person will not respond to you. What do you do if they don't repent? Well, you can't forget it. They're still in sin. The problem's not been corrected, so what do you do? Well, fourthly, you must respect the process of discipline. Now, we're actually already into the process. You started that when you went to the person. Uh, You put the wheels in motion for this, and you did exactly what Jesus told us to do. Restoration started with your godly activity. Someone said to me the other day when we were talking about a a sin that needed to be corrected. And this person came to me and said, I need to deal with this, but I can't go to that person because I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt their feelings. But do you realize that that actually says more about you than it does about that person? You're afraid that if you go that they're going to think badly of you? You're more concerned about that problem than confronting their sin and trying to correct the problem that's a sin against Christ and against the church. And so what you've done is that you've just placed yourself and that person above the word of Jesus Christ. And do you know what we call that? That's idolatry. Whenever you put anything above Christ and his word, you're guilty of idolatry. If you put their feelings above what's right, and above correcting them, then you're guilty of idolatry. Now let me show you one case where one person might be really intimidated intimidated to go to another. In the book of Galatians, Paul talks about going to a brother to confront him with his sin. Anybody care to guess who that brother was? It was Peter. Paul had to go to Peter. Now Peter was the most prominent of all of the Lord's disciples. We know that, don't we? We've talked about him and how he's so prominent in Scripture, how he's always listed first in all of the names of the disciples when they're given. 
Peter was among the inner circle with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. So how would you go to a person that as far as the flesh is concerned, this person is the best friend of Jesus? How are you going to go to the best friend of Jesus and confront him with his sin? Now, Paul was a very humble person. In fact, Paul said, of all the apostles, I'm the least of them. He said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he knew that Peter had done something wrong. In fact, Peter was actually guilty of an error that undermined the gospel of Christ. And so in Galatians 2, verse 11, and I won't go into all the story about it, but in Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul said, I went face to face with Peter. And Paul backed him down on his sin. And you know what Peter did? He corrected it. And later he wrote endearing words about Paul. And that's what you seek to do. That's what you hope for. That's what you pray for. You want to gain your brother according to Matthew 18, 15. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And so you have to go further into the process. You can't drop it there and say, oh, well, that didn't work. So I guess we just have to forget about it. You can't do that because you're really concerned about that person. And the sin is still there. and You're concerned about the purity of the church. So you can't stop. You have to go to the next step. The 16th verse says, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Take one or two more with you and go back and see that person. Now, there are reasons to take one or two more back. The first reason is just right here on the surface for us to grab. It says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And that comes right out of the Word of God. That's what God's Word says. The disciples would have caught that immediately, that in order to establish a true testimony, you need witnesses. This is what Deuteronomy says. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. And we have the same in our courts of law. You can't just accuse somebody and make it your word against his. You have to have some witnesses to it. Now, understand that the witnesses that it's speaking of here are not necessarily witnesses that have seen the person's sin. But rather, this is a two or three that go with you that hear the matter when this person is confronted with that sin. They hear the accusation that's been made, and they're able to report as to the reaction to that accusation. And so they can attest that an honest effort has been made to correct it, and here's the way that this person reacted. Now, they may say, well, this person was confronted with the sin, and so they repented of it. They had a genuine, sin, uh, a genuine attitude of repentance. Or they might say, the person wouldn't do anything. The person refused to hear, refused to repent. And so taking one or two more with you may help to convince that person that the sin needs to be repented of. It adds more weight to the call to repentance. And if that doesn't work, then those witnesses are there to help take it to the next step in the process. They report that there are more steps that need to be taken. Well, what's the next step? He gives it to us in verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them those two or three, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. 
So the next step is go tell the church. Take that matter to the assembly of God's people and then let the whole church get involved. Well, now you see the circle of influence is widening. The call to repentance becomes more intense. I think this is the place where leadership may get involved. That if they're not already a part of the two or three witnesses that have gone, then this is a place for the leadership of the church to get involved with it. Now, we're not ready yet to turn that person loose. What we're doing here is we're taking all the effort that we can to get that person to do what's right and to bring them back because we just don't want people to leave the church and never come back. We want them to be, to be restored to the fellowship of God's people. And what this does is to, la- uh, to, to put on another layer of intensity. Leadership is the representation of the entire church. And you can't add the counsel of the leadership on top of what's already been said and then for that person to say, well, I don't care what the leadership says. I don't have to comply. My opinion about what I do and what I want to do is just as good as what they say. I don't favor a hierarchical structure, but aren't we all in agreement that pastors and deacons have already been examined for the discernment of spiritual matters? And isn't that especially the pastor's job as a shepherd to guide in the spiritual welfare of the flock? Now, we actually find an example of this in 2 Corinthians that Paul followed up on witnesses to sin. Now, if you turn there for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we find the Apostle Paul dealing with the Corinthian church about sin that was found there, about witnesses that had gone All those steps had been taken, and now the Apostle Paul has to come. He's part of this leadership. He's an apostle of the Lord, and he comes to help take care of this problem. So we look at the end of 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, at verse number 20. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20. Paul says, For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, would not. Now, Paul is saying that I hope that I get there and I find out that things are better than I thought, and it's going to be bad for you if they're not better than I thought. And he says, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. He goes on in chapter 13, This is the third time that I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time, and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other, that if I come again... I will not spare. Now, Paul is saying, pay attention to the two or three witnesses. Take care of the problem in the church. Because when I come, I'll take care of it if it hasn't been taken care of. So the steps had been taken. The witnesses were in place. And now leadership has to take a role. And if that person doesn't repent, the whole church is now involved. And there's an action that's ready to be taken. Well, here is where we come to the step that hardly any church will take against sin. Now, they don't like to go in the first place. They don't like to confront people with sin, and they sure don't like to do what Jesus says in verse 17. If the matter comes to the church and the offender will not hear you, he didn't repent when the person went alone, and he didn't repent 
when two or three people went to see him, and he didn't repent when the leadership got involved, then what do you do? Scripture says you put the person out. I know that's hard, but do you understand that God does require us to keep a holy membership? That there's a certain responsibility that when you become a member of the church and if you are a Christian and you don't live the way that you're supposed to live and you're in sin and you just go on with that, you're hurting the entire body of Christ. And so something has to be done about that. The sin will spread to other people in the church. It doesn't just affect you. And so now the, the sin begins to spread. Sin hinders fellowship and sin stops God's blessings. Sin unreproved and unrepentant spreads like wildfire. Now, why would we ever want to hang on to people that, that stand in the face of the church and in the face of leadership, and they say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the leadership of the church says. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what Christ wants done. I have my own way, and I'll go my own way. Do we really want that kind of a person poisoning the fellowship of the entire church? We have to see the responsibility individually here. So what do you conclude about a person that won't repent? Well, you can't treat that person any longer as a brother. Their, their, their sin is of the most serious kind. How serious is it? Jesus says, consider that person as a heathen and a tax collector. What does that mean? Well, I don't know how to put it into you any other way. It simply means that person is an outcast. You can't tolerate their sin. They infect the body. And when you want to stop an infection, what do you do? You cut it off. You have to get rid of it. Now, in this case, the comparison is to a heathen and a tax collector. Now, a tax collector was an, was an outcast. He was a turncoat against his own people. In those times... They, they hired Jewish people to collect the Roman taxes, and those tax collectors were extortioners. Not only did they collect the Roman taxes, but they extorted money from their own people. They were hated, and so they were thrown out. They were disfellowshipped. They couldn't come into the synagogues. There was no association with those people. And they would have got the reference. I mean, uh, the ones that Jesus was talking to, they understood this very well. They understood it very well. They knew what he meant when he said, treat them as a heathen and a tax collector. And you say, well, did Jesus ever save tax collectors? Well, of course he did. He saved Matthew. Matthew wrote this gospel, and he was a tax collector. And Zacchaeus had to chase him out of a tree, but he saved him, and he was a tax collector. Well, this doesn't have that kind of person in view, not somebody that will repent. Well, we're talking about here someone, about someone who will not repent of their sin. They've been in the church. They've made offenses against the body of Christ. They will not do what they're supposed to do. And so now he says that we are to cut that person off. And that means that they don't get the benefits any longer of being associated with God's people. Now, is that really a Christian practice? It sounds so hard. Is it really what the Bible says to do? Well, actually, this is what the Bible says. And we have a very telling example of exactly this process in the Word of God and what we're supposed to do and how we are to treat a person who has sinned against the church and will not 
repent. We have an example from Scripture that's very clear. And I want to tell you about it. But the only problem is I'm out of time. So we have this example. I don't have time to talk to you about it. Matthew 18:17 is put into practice in Scripture. But we don't have time, so we're going to come back and talk about it next week. How far does church discipline go? How serious of, a, of an effect does it have on the offender? We'll come back next week and I'll tell you about the rest of the story. So we conclude with that today, and I have to emphasize to you that Christ desires a pure church, and what we must do is to give him what his, he desires. It starts with each of us, that we are to examine our own lives personally to find out our sin, and we're to closely scrutinize every action that we do. Is what I do pleasing to Christ? What would Christ have me to do? What friends do I have? How do I talk to them? What kind of language do I use? What, what places do I go? What, what do I wear? What's my attitude about the things of God? You have to start with yourself. And that's supremely important for us to keep a pure and holy church, one unspotted from the defilement of sin. And so it starts with you. And when you're right, and when you are spiritual, then you're ready to help deal with the sin in the lives of others. Now, that's what the Lord has called us to do. Let's be sure that we do this. It is personally distasteful. I don't know of anyone who says, boy, you know what I want to do? I just want to go find somebody in sin, and I just want to go after them and tell them about it and try to straighten them up. Most of us just don't want to do that. It's a hard thing to do. Many times we're dealing with family members. Sometimes we're dealing with friends, people that we're close to. And you have to do what the Bible says. We always obey Christ in everything. And this is what God's Word says to do. Personally distasteful, but in fact it is the way that Christ loves. And what we're to do is to match His love. And we'll talk more about it next week as we look at the effects that this has on the person who has offended. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time that we've been able to spend in Your Word today. We, we have a subject that is not fun to talk about, very hard for us to do, but it's part of your word. This is scripture, and we ought not to overlook it. And this is the problem that we see so many times in churches today where nobody ever preaches against sin anymore. Nobody ever talks about what should go on in the lives of the membership and so we have churches that are out of the will of God. We have churches where, where people uh, sin with impunity. And Lord, we know that that's not the way that you'd have it to be. In order for us to be a church that's like the church that you want us to be, we have to act like you and discipline as you discipline. Follow the instructions that we have. But Lord, I also ask that we would all have a spirit of humility, that all of us would have a strong desire of love and concern to see people corrected and come back to the place of fellowship and blessing. And may that always be foremost on our minds. We're not interested in punishment. We're not interested in vengeance. We're not interested in getting back at anybody. No, we're trying to restore people to fellowship, to receive the blessings that you have for them. Thank you, Lord, for this. Help us to be what you'd have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.